Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. I got to tell you, it's a bit strange to me to not hear your voices chime back in on that reply right there. It makes Easter seem not quite like Easter, but I trust that you declared along with me that Christ is risen indeed, for he has indeed. So, Alleluia and Amen. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 132 again. I say again because we did on Maundy Thursday, just a few evenings ago together. And in that Monday Thursday gathering together, we saw, as Alex led us in the first 10 verses of this psalm, we saw that this psalm points to the fact that the anointed one, God's anointed one, is on the move. The song of ascents, as this one is, may seem to be an odd place to go for an Easter sermon, but the psalms, as all of the Old Testament does, points and anticipates towards the fact that God would move, that God would fulfill his redemptive promises for us, for his people. And this Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 132, anticipated it, certainly. In fact, this one pointed to far greater possibilities than ordinary imaginations might have devised. The first 10 verses, which Alex spoke to on Thursday evening, are a reflection on King David's desire a desire that he did not get to fulfill, a desire to build a house, a home for God's presence in Jerusalem. Years later, Solomon, his son, would actually complete that project. And at the completion of that project, the prayer of dedication that Solomon offered includes a part of this psalm, verses 8, 9, and 10 at least, because God would answer this prayer. God would answer this request. And on Easter Sunday especially, we see that his answer was much more than what David had requested. Psalm 132, follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, he says. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Some 30 years ago or so, Rob White sat with his wife, Cat on the porch of their home overlooking the Pacific Ocean in California. Now, on that particular day, they had the, the fun privilege of watching a couple of biplanes, stunt planes, flying together out over the ocean, running stunts, loops, and barrel rolls, and dives down towards the ocean. And one of those biplanes was Fire Engine Red, like the Red Baron in Snoopy's stories. And Rob looked at his wife and he said, I want to do that. 
And his wife, Kat, was skeptical immediately. She said, really, Flyboy? She knew his dislike of all things airplane-related, but he was insistent. He said, yes, in fact, my birthday is coming up soon, and I want to do that for my birthday. And so his birthday came, and they went to the local airport nearby where they knew those planes would be resting. They found the pilots, and indeed they did offer rides to would-be stunt flyers like Rob. And so he paid his fee, and the pilot welcomed him with a helmet and goggles and a flight jacket because it would be cold up high, and they took off in that plane. They flew along the coast, so close along the coast that Rob could look down and see his own home. He saw that Kat, his wife, had arrived home to watch the show from the comfort of their porch. And they flew on out over the ocean, and this pilot began to do some tricks and a few little spins, and Rob yelled up to him and said, I want the real stuff. Do some loops. Do a dive. And so the pilot looped around and did a barrel roll, and he dove down towards the ocean, and Rob immediately realized that he was in trouble. This was more than he had thought that he would get. And by the time they arrived back at the airport, they landed and Rob climbed out of the plane. His wife was there to meet him, to pick him up, and she immediately laughed at him and pointed at him. He had wet his pants because this flight was far more than what he had imagined that it would be. Rob was a classic example that you have to be careful what you wish for. You may get more than what you request. This Psalm 132 is such a request. We don't really know exactly who wrote Psalm 132, but it's reflecting on a request of King David that he had made of God some years before. David wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark, of course, was that large box, a wooden box covered in gold that had been made under Moses' direction in the wilderness over 300 years before. So by the time David came around, this Ark, this golden box was something of an important relic and it contained the, the testimony of God, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. And it was covered in a, a golden uh, cover, a lid that was called the atonement cover for God's people. And the presence of that box for Israel was the very presence of God himself. And now for some three centuries, that, that ark, that box had languished without permanent home. And David wanted to fix that. To David's credit, he wanted to do right and fix that problem. He wanted the presence of God to be near to himself and to his people. David knew that the one true God was and is and always will be the source of all of life itself. And he longed for that gospel life for himself and for the people of Israel. David, in this prayer, Psalm 132, is a gospel picture that you should be careful what you wish for because you may just get more than you requested. In the second half of this psalm, God answers the request with three gospel statements that lead us directly to Resurrection Day. He makes a gracious promise, and he claims a forever place, and he declares a king of kings. What is the gracious promise that he makes? The first 10 verses of the psalm, again, are David and Solomon having their say for what they desire. But then verse 11, now God has his say. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. 
one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. That's God's promise to David. One of the sons of your body I'll set on your throne. And in an immediate sense, of course, that son was Solomon. And Solomon, presumably, at the beginning of the psalm, remembers David and David's own zealous, worldly promise that he made. Back in verse 1, this is what we read. O Lord, remember David and all the hardships that he endured, how he swore to you, O God, I won't go in my house, I won't relax in my bed, I won't sleep until I establish a place for you to dwell. David made an oath. He made a promise, a very zealous one, a very eager promise. I won't go in my house, I won't sleep, I won't relax in my own bed until I do this, Lord, I promise. David made a promise to, to build a temple in Jerusalem. And the request, I think, is implicit. If I do this thing for you, Lord, then may your presence be with us. It was a zealous promise. It was a bold request that David made of God here in in this, uh, this psalm, it was like Moses asking God to, to show him his face. Moses wanted to see God. Sometimes you ask something, you make a request, and you get more than you thought that you would get. And despite his zeal, David could not fulfill this promise. Now, we're like David so often. Sometimes we'll make zealous promises to God in our hearts. Lord, if I do this for you, then surely you'll do this thing for me. It's good to be zealous for God, but before we bank on our own zealous promises, we have to see the gracious promise that God made. He had made this promise centuries before, of course. He'd already made it. Back to Abraham in the book of Genesis, God promised, I will establish my covenant between me and between you and the generations to come after you, to live with you and walk with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. So he promised to Abraham. But then he also promised to Moses in the book of Exodus. He said, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will live with you, and I will walk with you. I will dwell among you. So he promised to Moses. And so he promised to the Israelite people in the book of Leviticus. He said, I will live among you and walk among you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, David, of course, by now knew these covenant promises, and he longed for this to be so. He longed for God's presence to be with his people. But God's redemptive plan was unfolding in God's time, not in David's timing. And so God extended a sure oath, a gracious promise to David in verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. In other words, David, even if you don't build a temple for that golden box in Jerusalem, and you won't, even then, still my promise to you stands, and it's more than you've requested of me. If you know anything of the history of Israel from David and Solomon and following, then you probably know that the generations that came after them did not keep to the covenant that God had made with them. They were not faithful. In fact, they conspired and they schemed and they divided and they murdered and they built their own kingdoms for their own interests. And yet, 
we still today celebrate Easter. Why? Because God's promise was not just sure, it was gracious. Despite your failures, he might have said to them, despite your failures, David and Solomon, despite the failures of your sons who come after you, I'm going to provide a king who will be forever. But before pointing directly to that king, God points directly to a place, a forever place. Verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Before Israel had ever entered into the promised land, before King David even was a speck on the horizon of Israel's future, God had instructed the people in Deuteronomy chapter 12 with these words. He said, you must not worship the Lord your God in the way of the world, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose to put his name for there is his dwelling. To that place you must go. That's what God said to them way back in Deuteronomy before they were ever into the promised land. To that place you must go because that's where my name will be. That's where I will be. And that place was Mount Zion. It was Jerusalem. Verse 14, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Now, I don't know all the theological details of why that particular place. I know that theologians wrestle with that and discuss that and consider and contemplate and speculate. Why that particular place? I don't, I don't know, but I do know this, that it was a signpost of something much, much bigger. God would, in fact, bless her, her provisions, as the psalm says. He would, in fact, satisfy her poor. He would clothe her priests with salvation, and he would give joy to her saints. But he would do that not just for that city. Fifty days after the resurrection of Christ, the day of Pentecost arrived, and the Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples like tongues of fire resting upon their heads. It was a visible sign hearkening back to the Old Testament of God's presence with his people, as if God were saying, my forever place is not just a geographic location. On, on this earth, my forever place, my dwelling is with and in my people. My forever place is the church. The Westminster theologians back in the Reformation era understood this well in the Confession of Faith. They wrote these words, which might grate a little bit against uh, our sensibilities. They wrote, the visible church consists of everyone throughout the world who professes faith in the gospel and their children, and it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, these Westminster theologians were definitely not 21st century independence-loving American Christians to say something like that. The church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. What they knew was that the church was the institution that God created, that he had planned all along through redemptive history to establish in order to bring about 
the salvation of his people. Now we have a distinct advantage of perspective over David and Solomon from their time and even the writer of this psalm because we're 3,000 years down the redemptive historical timeline from when they were. We can see that God's forever, forever place is wherever his people are gathered in his name in faith. Now, this season of separation that we all are enduring right now during this COVID-19 pandemic, if it's prolonged, is not good for our souls. Let's just admit that together. It's not good for our souls to endure this for long because God calls his church to actually be together. But even when we can't be together, even when we're limited to this fast food appetite of virtual connection, still... God dwells among us. Still God is blessing, and still God is satisfying, and still God is clothing with salvation, and still God is providing insightful saints with many reasons for joy, because he did, in fact, walk with us, having declared and now provided a king of kings, a gracious promise, a forever place, the king of kings. Verse 17. There in Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. Now that's a strange saying. That's a Bible saying. It's not something that registers with us very well. It's, it's odd to our ears. May a horn sprout for him. You don't say that to each other. You don't wish for each other that a horn should sprout for you. But that's God's benediction, as it were, for David here, because in this rural agrarian society in which David lived, a horn was quickly understood not to be the honking horns of big city traffic, but rather to be the symbol of strength that is the business end, as it were, of a goat or a ram or a bull. You know, even, even city folks in Texas understand that a longhorn even if a longhorn may be a relatively friendly beast, a longhorn's horns are something you don't want to tangle with. That's the business end, and you want to keep your distance. The Ark of the Covenant, that golden-covered box, was God's presence with his people, especially when they were in battle. And it is the business end of God, as it were. And yet David and Solomon, in bringing it to Jerusalem, surely knew that it was really just a symbol of God's presence with them. The real business end of God's power would be shown a thousand years later in the righteousness of Christ, who did not waste his time bickering with the symptoms of the fall, but rather took on the root of the fall directly. He came as the only real king that this world could ever know. Any other king... It's just a symbol of this real king. And indeed, a horn would sprout for David. A, a powerful king would sprout in David's line, and it would last forever as well. Verse 17, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. In Matthew 25, in the last week of his life, Jesus tells us, parable about the ten bridesmaids who are waiting for the bridegroom. They each have a lamp at night. 
Some of them are prepared with lots of oil in their lamp, and some of them are not so prepared. And those who are not so prepared, their lamps burn out and they have to leave. And while they're gone, the bridegroom comes because they were not prepared. The point is here in verse 17, if God has prepared the lamp for his anointed, then that lamp will never run out of oil. This king of kings is forever. And he's also radiant. He's resplendent. Verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now on the cross, Jesus wore a crown, the crown of thorns. But after the resurrection, things are altogether different, aren't they? For you kids who are watching along with your folks at home this morning, if you worked yourself through the work for young worshipers on Thursday evening, then you remember I asked you this question. Do you think that Jesus wears a better crown now? He wore a crown of thorns on Friday, and he wears a crown of eternity on Sunday. A radiant and resplendent, a shining crown, because only this king could subject himself to death on our behalf and overcome it. You see, this psalm actually looks forward to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. David had requested the presence of God, but what God has brought about is actually so much more than what David had expected. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul explains a bit about what this is all about. He explains there in in chapter 3, verse 25 of the book of Romans, that God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice for sin, or the theological word is propitiation, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross served two purposes for us. One purpose was to take away guilt. And the other purpose purpose it served was to gain God's favor. One negative purpose, as it were, to take away our guilt. And one positive purpose, as it were, to, to give something, to gain God's favor. David was pursuing the ark. He wanted the ark of the covenant to come into Jerusalem. And the ark of the covenant, that golden box, It had a lid, a cover over the top that God had specifically designed with angels and their wings reaching out in gold. And that was what the Israelites came to call the mercy seat, the atonement cover. It was the very place in the Old Testament worship where the the sacrifice for sin was made. David had requested that God's presence, that God's mercy come into the presence of God's people. But David and we got so much more than what he had requested. What David wanted was made by human hands. What we got was devised by God himself. What David wanted required labor, but what we got requires faith. What David wanted was only a symbol, but what we got was eternal victory over death and the reality of that victory because of the blood of Christ shed at Easter for you and for me. I have a friend who lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's a medical doctor, and he spent much of the month 
of the month of March at home, battling against and recovering from the coronavirus, COVID-19. He's well now. He's recovered. That was some weeks ago, and he's actually back now at the hospital working as a doctor again, but his role at the hospital has a new twist to it because the plasma of his blood now contains the antibodies, the proteins that the immune system uses to fight off that particular disease. And it's a very unique blood that he has that few people relatively have at this point. And he's given his blood in hopes that some lives could be saved with it. At Easter, what we celebrate is the most unique blood of all. There's only one who has it, the blood of God himself, Jesus, the righteous Son of God, which, by the work of faith, does actually save your soul. Now, all through that dark Friday and Saturday, the fearful disciples were actually sheltering in place, you might say. Their world had been completely turned upside down. And in a moment, it was all turned right side up because the tomb was empty on the third day. Now I realize that the resurrection of a dead man seems to have no reasonable place in a world that demands that science give all the answers, that science is the only reliable source of of understanding and truth. I, I realize that the resurrection of a dead man in that context doesn't seem to have a reasonable place, but I would submit to you that history accounts for it, that this broken world requires it, and that the power of God made it to be so. This is the day in history when God himself broke in and did far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. He made a gracious promise. He claimed a forever place, and he declared the king of kings. So when it comes to the gospel, be careful what you ask for, because you will get more than you request. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us. Help us to believe your word Help us to trust you for the truth of it because you're the owner of history. You're the maker of history. And you're the one who established for us the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And you saw that he was put to death by sinful men and you did not leave him in the tomb. For our sakes, you raised him from the grave and you elevated him to your right hand where even now he sits interceding for us. Lord, we praise you for this and give you thanks in his name. Amen.